Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, nerds. Welcome to episode 447 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam for today's episode. Uh, shout out to Joe for handling the entirety of both of our episodes last week. That was a... A busy boy with uh, all sorts of stuff going on. Um, and so she covered all that. So thank you very much, Jill. Much appreciate it. Uh, today's just me. Uh, one of the things I was very busy with last week was prepping for and doing today's interview. So I, I'm like blown away that I get to share this conversation with you guys. Uh, today's interview is a conversation I had with Mikkel Jolette, who is the lead singer of the Airborne Toxic event one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, and he has a new book out. It's his memoir. It's his debut book that he's written. It's the first book he ever wrote uh, called Hollywood Park. And Hollywood Park is also the name of their brand new album, which came out on Friday of last week, um, which it's unsurprisingly incredible. Um, but this book is the memoir of the extremely traumatic and, and sad and challenging childhood that Mikkel had with his family. Uh, he was born and then raised in his youngest years in the Sinanon cult, uh, him and his brother. And uh, then later on, when he was still extremely young, um, he they escaped um, with his mom and they lived a life that was very much kind of on the run and uh, filled with tragedy and a lot of hardship and um, just every possible reason for him not to be an incredible and exceptional and empathetic human being. And yet here he is, um, one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met. Um, like I said, I, I was excited going into this conversation because I've been a fan of the Airborne Toxic event for like basically two decades at this point. And, um, so this was one of the those conversations that I was building up in my mind, hoping I you know, wouldn't make too big of a deal of it, but he, Mikel is every bit as amazing as I was hoping he, he would be. So we, we get into a lot of in-depth conversation about his introspectiveness and how he did research on his own life to go back and tell these stories and how, even though the fact that it's a memoir and it's nonfiction, it's his memoir. And so he put, you know, some magical realism in there because it's the way that he saw the world at the times that he was writing about um, we talk about Toni Morrison and uh, just a number of authors that inspired him. So I, I'm i just really, really excited to share this conversation with you guys. I actually joked at the end. I made it about an hour long of a conversation together without asking him to play any music. So I was very proud of myself. Um, wanted to. We were on Zoom together and I could see guitars in the background, but I knew it would be inappropriate and very fanboy of me to beg him to play some songs. But uh, the book Hollywood Park is on the lists all over the place of a best book to read of the summer, best book of the year. And it's, if it's not the best book I've read this year, it is certainly one of them. Um, it stayed with me a long time after finishing it. And yeah, he's just, he's a great guy and I couldn't, I can't, can't think of enough for taking the time 
especially when he's releasing not only a, a book but also an album at the same time so he's very busy but yeah i think that's just about everything if you want to get a hold of us you can always reach us at professionalbooknerds.com you can shoot us an email professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com uh, find us on twitter and instagram at probooknerds we are all over the place hanging out with you wherever we can um we got some more fun stuff coming up in the next couple weeks so i uh, excited to share that with you guys but for now i'm not going to keep you any longer i just want you to get to this conversation that i had with Mikel Gillette of the airborne toxic event on the professional book nerds podcast <laughs> everybody it's adam and i cannot tell you how excited i am for today's episode uh this is something that if i told a little 16 year old version of me he was going to get to talk to this person he would not have believed you would have freaked out uh today i am joined by mikhail gillette who is the lead singer of the airborne toxic event one of my favorite bands of all time and he has written a new memoir called hollywood park which also uh, is going coming out right around the same time as the band's new album by the same title uh, the book is fantastic. I've only gotten to listen to the first two tracks that have been released. I, your your book publisher didn't have access to uh, to the album, unfortunately. Oh, they should have told me. I'd have sent you the record. That's all right. It'll be it'll be great when it's I can listen to it days. next week. That's all right. No worries. But first off, Mikhail, thank you for joining me today. This is I'm super jazzed about this. Thank you for having me, Adam. I really appreciate it. It's nice to be here. And by here, I mean, you know, the metaphor of the meeting that exists in cyberspace listen outside of uh hanging out with my wife this is the, as close over zoom is as close i've gotten to another human being in, in two right. months so that, right. that this is as close as we get but uh I, we always love starting out our our interviews and our conversations by having the author introduce their book so i'm gonna let you kind of introduce everybody to hollywood park oh um i guess here so this is it i just got these in the mail the other yeah. day which was kind of weird um so yeah, my book's called Hollywood Park. It's a, it's a memoir. Uh, I, I don't know how I, I like to think of it. I, I think I think of it as a coming of age tale about a kid growing up in a very tumultuous, traumatic, in some cases, world. And I, maybe maybe the, the man he invented to deal with that trauma and then the process of uninventing that man again as an adult in order to you know find, uh, find the true love. That's the- <laughs> Yeah, that's the, you know. The- <laughs> The, the, the big the there big was a movie series. trailer you know it would be like <laughs> so anyone who is familiar with your your music you i've always told people you have an extremely emotional lyrics i actually used to jokingly call you guys like operatic emo like that's kind of how like there's like these like swells and the strings and everything but the lyrics that you always write they're so personal and they feel so realistic and like you're telling stories that you've actually experienced. So having that experience writing the lyrics, how different did it feel writing this as an actual book? Like, was there any crossover? Um, I don't know if there's much crossover. I, songwriting is very physical. Uh, it's, 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 in some ways, it's like the intellectual equivalent of dunking a basketball. It's like, it's this thing that requires repetition. So much of it's in your body, your voice, your inflection. Um, you know, something about melody is a very economical way of storytelling. The rise and fall of the voice, I think, as humans, we, we really understand. Um, 
a mood, you know, uh, through that. So, so becoming a songwriter is like learning a party trick. It's like juggling or something. It's like, it's just repetition, repetition, repetition. Uh -huh. Some people are naturally gifted at it. Some people develop their talent. Um, but it's definitely like a muscle that you return to. Um, so I'd been doing that since I was 15. So, um, and I, I probably have a thousand rules for it in my head. I just don't know what they are. Cause I don't <laughs> probe it that much. Cause it's bad to do that, you know, mm -hmm. you're too self-conscious about your process. And then writing the book was, you know, it was scholastic. It was, it felt like being a professor. Um, it felt like losing your shit, losing your mind. It felt like going crazy. It felt like crossing the Atlantic in a bathtub. It was this crazy long journey that was three, it was a three year process start to finish. Um, and a good year of which was spent locked in this room, you know, six days a week, 12 hours a day, no social commitments. I didn't go out. Luckily I'd already met my wife. She was like a war widow, poor thing. Uh, and I was just down here, like in my hovel, you know, in my hermitage, just like, and like, it, there's like, um, it was sort of like constructing the Watts Towers in your basement, mm -hmm. just this, you know, or cathedral or something. It was just like this really detailed thing that nobody had ever seen. I had this massive Microsoft Word document and returning to it every day was, it was heartbreaking sometimes because it was just so long and so difficult and extremely challenging mm -hmm. and, and also just a rigorous pursuit. I mean, something about letting the rest of the world fall away allowed me to kind of just focus in on this massive, rigorous intellectual pursuit, you know, you know, like you imagine like, I don't know, scientists or something, maybe like Einstein working on general relativity or something. I'm not Einstein. I don't mean it like that. Mm -hmm. What I mean is that like, just like, let's, let's let the rest of the world fall away. Let's not think about all that stuff. We're not going on tour. We're not leaving. We're not going to a party. We're not doing anything. <laughs> We're going to be here reading and writing every day for three years. And if we do that, then we have a chance to maybe capture something, um, that you, you know, set out to capture. So were you, cause it's been a while since you guys have had a new album come out with the band. Were you planning on doing an album with the book or did the, like, did, were you writing song lyrics? I just feel like that would be some kind of like self-torture to be like, all right, I'm going to work on this for 12 hours a day writing this book. And then I'm also going to try to figure out an economy of words version of these to write, you know, our, you know songs as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was a simultaneous process. Um, I'd started writing books. My father died and it really hit me hard. And sorry, I started writing songs. Um, and doing so was, um, you know, it was, it was really sad. It was sort of like my way of dealing with it, maybe trying to understand it, um, to look at it, get lost in it, fully feel it, you know. Um, and then I just sort of come to after about nine months of just utter depression and grief and sadness um, over that and decided I want to write a book. Um, and so uh, it wasn't, and then when I got really into the story, I got really into my life as a child, my life growing up, mm -hmm. who this kid was, who I was at different ages. And, and what it did was it, it, it put me in this um, sort of this emotional world. All the reference points were there. And so I felt like I was inhabiting that. So then it was like, I would just write songs from, from that perspective. And eventually I realized, oh, I'm writing the soundtrack to this book. <laughs> and so the thought was, okay, well, a movie can have a soundtrack. Why can't a book have a soundtrack? um did you we were talking a little bit before we started recording about um audiobooks and stuff did you are you doing the audiobook yourself oh, yeah i did the audiobook i did the whole thing start to finish i, I also um so I, i'm the narrator and then we also scored it with instrumentals from the record so various scenes are sort of brought mm -hmm. to life 
Uh, and it's not the whole way through. It's like maybe I think 20 to 30 different times yeah. over the course of the whole book. Suddenly this music comes in and it kind of scores the scene and it's mm -hmm. generally taken from the songs that the scenes were drawn from. Yeah, that's actually gonna be my question because I um, interviewed Ben Folds last year and kind of asked him if he had he did the same thing and like it adds so much to an audiobook. That, well, first off, do it yourself, which I imagine had to be pretty uh, a unique experience, but also like adding everything, kind of adding it in. Like, what was that experience like doing your own audiobook? It was weird. I, I feel like you can tell when um, the the author like took a break and then came back because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> you start off because it's just such a long time where you're reading you start off very this american life you know you <laughs> like on today's book chapter one we went every on you know like <laughs> and you feel like in it and you're mm -hmm. just like engaged and then by like hour six you're like in, your voice goes hoarse and you just yeah your tongue starts to feel slippery and your mouth doesn't work very well and you start going like <laughs> and you have to remind yourself to like no no try to be that person so it's a lot of drinking tea and it's a lot of um trying to stay motivated um and it's weird it's weird things happen like i didn't know because i don't you know I've, I've spent a lot of lot time just alone writing that when you talk for six hours straight you actually lose control of the muscles in your mouth i mm -hmm. didn't know that so i'd find myself tripping up over, over weird words like i remember i couldn't pronounce the word colorful being like color, color, colorful, colorful, color. What a weird word. Color, colorful, color. And they had to do the take like ten times so I could say the word colorful because my mouth just was like, it's a little like being drunk, I guess. It's really funny to me that a person who has spent his life singing is like, yeah, it's weird talking for so long, as if like that wasn't. It's. A, I know it's a completely different experience, but like, Loki, uh, singing is actually easier on your voice than talking is. Really. Yeah, it's actually, uh, if you're warmed up and you're in your range, you're not straining, then it's actually a lot easier just to kind of like uh, on your voice to just sort of sing your way through. Mm -hmm. Talking is very guttural and stop, start, and oftentimes you have to project in ways that are not healthy for your voice. And, you know, if you have a singing style that doesn't um, strain, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's actually easier. Interesting. Uh, now, I, I don't have one of those singing styles, by the way. I do a lot of screaming. So I wasn't going to bring it up, but I was like, that doesn't, that's like... <laughs> I mean, I don't know that that's exactly and like getting on stage and getting drunk and then playing for a bunch of people, then going to a bar and eating pizza later. Yeah. Definitely not good for your voice. Probably not the best thing for your voice in the world. No. <laughs> You're trying to tell me you weren't like sitting in your hotel room before and after just like hammering lemon hot water and like not well, experiencing the lifestyle. <laughs> well, it depends. Like in the early part of the band or the later part, like when we first broke, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were going out every night and yeah. doing all the bad stuff that you're not supposed to do to your voice and, mm -hmm. you know, all the things that really stress you out or whatever. Um, and then, but then like later on, actually was like that. It was much more like I drink tea, I'm in my mm. bunk, it's quiet, and then go out, do the show. And then 10 minutes after the show, I'm back in my bunk in the bus, you know, yeah. calling my wife or something. That's funny. Uh, so, you know, we talked about the, the stories and the things that you remembered when you were younger and there's something that I love that you do early on in the book is like you, the way that you chose to write it is very, I don't want to say childlike because that's not what I'm trying to say, but like you use, we're inside your mind and it's looking at it through the eyes of sort of like how a young child would see it. It's so like, what made you want to kind of do that and then grow really with yourself as, you know, as a character, as you were writing it, because it, is that how you remember those times? Like, was that... Yeah. Well, I think that's how we all experience our childhoods. Um, mm -hmm. I think you can sort of look back on events and you sort of retroject your adult perspective and thoughts onto the onto the time. 
but I don't, I mean, at six years old, I wasn't certain I couldn't fly. Mm-hmm. Maybe like, I don't know, maybe it's just a matter of remembering how to do it. I don't know. I wasn't yeah. certain if animals could talk or not. Um, and plus we were being fed a lot of lies. And so I was, I was interested in bringing, and I believed a lot of those lies. I mean, we, we were told that we were in a good school. We were in fact in an orphanage. We were told we were in this commune that was going to change the world. We were in fact in a violent cult. We were told, you know, what a piece of shit our dad was when our dad was, he was a great guy and things like this. And so, you know, like I think most children living in difficult circumstances, we bought those lies. Mm-hmm. So as a writer, I was like, I just want to present this world through the eyes of a child, the child that I was, mm-hmm. um, with all this lies and confusion. And, you know, I thought, well, I, I have to inhabit this. So things have to happen. There's elements of magical realism, which you don't typically find in memoir. I guess yeah. uh, I was told I wasn't supposed to do. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. I'm, this is how your, it felt. It's your memoir. <laughs> well, it's how it felt. I mean, yeah. what I was going after was the sort of emotional psychological reality of it. And like, we, these idea that we don't con- construct our lives around, I think we affiliate things like metaphor, change in perspective, unreliable narratives, magical realism with fiction writing, when in fact, these are ways we organize our lives. These are the ways we construct our identities. And fiction writing is just an attempt to capture that. And so my thought was, well, why can't memoir writing be that as well? Yeah. I don't get it. All we're taking out is the invention of events. It has to be based on real events. But how we really think about our lives is the reason why people have totem spirits and totem animals. It's the reason why there's room for mysticism and spirituality in your life. It's the reason why people get tattoos. You know, it's the reason why people, you know, come to have massive changes in their personalities or their perspectives on events when new facts come to light. It's because shifting perspective and shifting narrative, th- these aren't tropes of fiction. These are human qualities. These are these are things that we build our identity around, and particularly as children, when you don't know um, what's real and what's not, when you're not sure about the physical reality of the world and certainly not sure about the emotional reality of the world around you, that's true. So I just thought, let's just put the reader right into that space. Let's mm-hmm. just be looking out at the world through the eyes of this traumatized kid uh, that I was. And you know, he's, at some point, my mom's going to turn into a bird and fly away. At some point, I'm going to climb up a thousand feet into a tower in the sky. Like, did that mm-hmm. happen? No. That, but in my mind, that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. And it felt very real. And I did talk to ghosts. Um, and I did um, spend a lot of time repeating lies that were patently untrue. Mm-hmm. And I, so I thought, well, let's just let the reader in on that. So well, the reader I- on page you know, four is hearing stuff that's not, it's definitely not true. And then the other thing I think it does is it lets the reader in on just how highly subjective all this is, which I think is the point. You know, we have our own histories. We're entitled to our own histories. We're entitled to our own stories. And it's all just sort of in service of the truth. It's all in service of the, answering the question, how was the world for you? That's what every good book does, I think. How did the world come to you? And if you can answer that question, um, I think that's, that's the mark of a, good, of a good story. Well, and not only are we entitled to our own stories and our own, you know, versions of things and how we what we want to feel every single person deals with trauma differently um you know i think back to when i was a kid i, I went through a couple of very traumatic experiences like when i was 10 years old my best friend and i were sitting and we watched his dad have a stroke and die and it was like it's oh weird God. yeah and it's one of those things where like he and i we've talked about it every now and then and like i can remember every single minute of that specific right, day right, right, but right. then my brain did something to i'm assuming to kind of protect me we're like i can't really remember the weeks or months kind of following it like my mom's like yeah we took you guys to to therapy and i'm like sure you did i have no like i have no recollection and i but that specific day i can remember crystal clear and i just think it's 
that's the way that my brain was like, all right, you're going to remember the thing that was really, really important, but we don't need you to remember all the horrible stuff that was around it. And what struck me about your book is like, you remember all of these things so clearly. And, and you obviously, you know, a lot of your younger childhood was, was trauma. And so it just, it struck me how much you remembered talking about the traumas that I went through and, and how my brain handled it. You seem to at least looking through the lens of knowing your music and now reading your memoir. It, it seems like you're the type of person who you handle traumatic experiences by really like your brain kind of harnessing what happened there and being able to maybe reflect on it after the fact, which. Well, it was a series of exercises too. I mean, so, so I think the brain, you know, psychologists talk about this, that during traumatic episodes, your mind just kind of takes a picture and there's this emotional memory uh, that happens. It's seared into your mind. So it's like things that have happened to you. It's almost like, you know, they were trauma because you can remember them really well. Mm -hmm. That's actually one thing that, you know, is very common with trauma. And not that doesn't happen for everyone, but it's quite common to just be like, you can't remember a random Thursday when you were five or eight or whatever, but you remember that time. Yeah. When you witnessed the stroke or you saw someone go through a car accident or you found out some piece of information that changed your whole world, whatever it was. And you know what the sky looked like, what the room looked like, what the person was wearing. You could recall it because it's just, it was traumatizing. And Mm -hmm. so you have this strong memory. So that's true. And that's true for my, for some of the more traumatic stuff. And then I just also went through a, a great, a long process of creating um, the world before I was writing about it, sometimes while I was writing about it. And I would do these place, I would take a place and I would, so Toni Morrison has this idea of rememory that she mm-hmm. gets into in Beloved. And the idea is that memory lives in, lives in places. And that if you can go to the places, the memories are still there, right in the place that they happen. Um, and so a lot of what I would do is I would go to the places that were, where different parts of the book were set and I would write down or speak into a, you know, tape recorder or whatever, my phone and and everything I remember, all the sights and sounds and details and stories and attitudes. And, you know, you ever go to a place you haven't been to in 10 years and you come back and you're like, Oh my God, (laughs) God, all this crap happened. It was nuts. Oh, that was that day. This, all that. And then all the stuff starts coming back to you. So I would do that for like hours at a time, just, you know, what were the sights, the sounds? How did it smell? What were the attitudes? How did I feel? How did they feel? What were the events? And then I would bring that home and I'd transcribe it. And then I would spend a couple of days writing around it. Everything else I remember, everything else, until I had this vibrant picture. What did I imagine was happening? How did I feel about it? How did they feel? What were the different details that I do remember? Oh, no, it wasn't an apple hostess pie. It was the generic chocolate frosted Mm-hmm. Uh, donuts in the little sleeve uh-huh. totally because that's what we used to fight about is who got the last one you know details like that which argue for their existence um the, for the fact of their existence i think are really important um and and sometimes you have to really sort of probe your memory for those things and then i would do interviews i'd call contemporaries people who were there at the time sort of see what they remember do maybe a little bit of research bring places up think about it through and then by the time i was done i'd have a for every place i'd have a document that was like anywhere from 10 to 50 pages long and I could read it through, read it through, read it through. And then when I sat down to write about it, it was just there. Mm-hmm. And I could think about story and voice and inflection and, and transitions and all the sort of things, all the writerly things that you think about because the place had already been kind of brought and like, oh, now we move to this other place. Okay, let me pull that up. 
read through it. Okay, now we're gonna, okay, that's the world. And then I can think about the story, draw details. And it's not like I have to do this all at the same time, which is construct the narrative, think about the character and try to, you know, see whatever I can remember about a place. Um, this might sound weird to say about writing your own memories and your own story, but when looking back and doing all this, you know, kind of researching conversations and introspective thinking, and were there any memories that surprised you while you were writing them? Like, oh, wow, that really, that really did happen. A lot. Um, a couple of things that come to mind was my, my brother. I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, how was your brother when you were a kid? I'd be like, he was a jerk. <sighs> you know, my brother was kind of a bully when we were kids. Um, and going back and writing about my brother now, it really taught me a lot of empathy for what he had gone through. Cause mm -hmm. some of it was like, okay, so I was totally in an orphanage for like the first bunch of years of my life. And so was my brother. Oh, but he was there three years longer than me. Right. I had sort of a mother figure in my mom, Bonnie, who was at the woman at the orphanage who took care of me. Uh, he didn't have that. Um, you know, we, we'd always sort of heard you know, maybe some bad things happen to my brother's abused in some ways or something. Um, but like, no one ever talked to him about it. And he, he was angry. And of course, he was angry. And so his stance as a kid, which was that all adults were full of shit. Um, I think he sort of resented the fact that I wasn't also voicing that because I mm -hmm. my response to the trauma and the stress of everything was to be like the super kid that's going to try and take care of everyone and do everything. And his response was to be like, fuck these people, fuck this and fuck you. Yeah, and just it made him, you know, in different families, he was the scapegoat Different families, you know, different kids take on different roles. And when you're under stress, and I was the super kid, he was the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I looked at it now. And I looking back, I'm like, Oh, man, this kid's speaking truth. What was I doing? <laughs> <laughs> he was right they were full mm -hmm. of shit what the fuck were they telling us this is horse shit of course yeah. they were he was right so it taught it taught me a lot of empathy um for for for, for my brother yeah well and, and like you said he was you know he was having those experiences three years longer than you and like yeah now three years my like flies by but when you're that young and you're basically a sponge like three years is a whole life that's that's so much time to read to learn kid, something he's seven years old or nearly seven he doesn't know who his parents are. He lives in an orphanage. There's no one to talk to. He's sitting alone on a playground. He doesn't have many friends. He's sad. He was probably abused. He's definitely neglected. You know, every kid in Sinanon was, you know, shamed, neglected, you know, beaten, molested, like you name it. Like all the nightmare scenarios that happened in orphanages happened in the Sinanon. Well, they called it the school, but it was an orphanage. Mm -hmm. We weren't living with our parents. Our parents were hundreds of miles away. And, you know, he was and and then we left and we lived on the run we witnessed violence like horrific right. violence we were hid out from the world and then eventually we went to live you know we're on like food stamps and government cheese and killing rabbits for, mm -hmm. for food and and no one was asking him nobody said like hey how is this for you are you okay we never saw a therapist like you said you saw there we never saw it never occurred to anyone that right. we were treated as accessories like this was something that happened to someone else mm -hmm. and we were told these lies they were just lies mm -hmm. and maybe the people telling them didn't know they were lies and I'll, I'll grant that that happens in cults but that doesn't change the fact that they were lies right and well and you and so if he was angry and like it's like yeah of course he was angry yeah you had every right to, well and you mentioned all the time like talking about like the you know being told lies and all these things like there's always there's multiple times when you're, you're talking about when you're with your mom and she gets depressed and really upset and you as a young child would just like repeat whatever you heard whether it was at 
like AA meetings you'd attended with her, like whatever it was, and she would call you an old soul, which I, I like love when a kid gets that. It's just because they're usually like calmer than the other kids, but it's like or I, they're just repeating some shit. Yeah, exactly. And like I, I love that you point. Like that's how honestly I love that so much in the book where you're like you'll say the like extremely smart intelligent thing and then like a paragraph later you're like i was just repeating what i heard i had no idea what that meant no idea yeah i remember that very vividly at the the time um we yeah we were taken to these aa meetings and heard we heard some crazy stories you're like seven and you're hearing about you know the fights in the street and you know cars overturned and long drinking binges and and by the way they were great stories yeah you could do a lot worse as a writer than growing up and sitting around aa meetings because mm-hmm. you you really some of the best storytellers in the world are they're not on like ted talks they're they're sitting around an aa meeting right now because right. they know how to land a joke you know they, they know how to construct <laughs> a narrative you got a beginning a middle the redemptive ending like they really understand like a shares are great stories what was it frank is that the guy by the around the yeah. fire was that his name yeah. like yeah. telling his stories about being in the war and stuff like that i really wanted to have a full aa share in the book um mm-hmm. you know kind of like brothers care Mazovers, and i wanted to have this yeah. moment in the book where you depart from the narrative and you're just going to experience a speech um and you know this one wasn't about you know god and whatever but this is this i mean i guess it was a little bit a little bit but yeah you hear a story and you hear sort of part of it's like what's like i you know i think we we think about what's damaging about these things and there was some things that we were too young to be in the emotional world of adults that was part of the point i was trying to make by like Mm -hmm. dude what are what are these seven-year-old ten-year-old why are we here why are we here um but then but then some of it was great I mean, in terms of it was compelling and it was funny and you, and you want to hear, you want to know more about Frank. And then when it's done, you're sort of like, God, Frank's a good guy. And oh man, we're here in nature and this is great. And so, um, you know, those are the sort of nuances um, that I think, um, again, argue for the veracity of a story. It's not mm-hmm. just like, here's the shitty things that happened to me. Right. Memoir is disaster <laughs> porn. Like, I, yeah. it's like, I wanted it to be like, well, how did we experience these things? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying what's like, let's talk about what's good about crack addiction. Like, <laughs> <laughs> although maybe a little bit I am. Because yeah. you become a crack addict or a heroin addict or a person who gives their life up for the human potential movement, as my parents did, um, because there's something really compelling. And I think there's, with the benefit of hindsight, you always assume these people are stupid and they, they weren't mm-hmm. stupid. They were trying to do the best they could given the information that they had. They made the choices probably many people would make because it was fun mm-hmm. or it was funny or because you felt loved or because you felt good or whatever it was. And that's, that's, that's how we experience the world. So something else like that people will notice is there's, there's a lot of like, you are an extremely literate person. which knows like a terrible word of saying like you're well-read, but you are a ludicrously well-read human being. And um, you mentioned Tony Morrison and, Shout out! I actually grew up in the the small city of Lorraine, where Tony Morrison is from. It's like the one thing that Lorraine like grasps onto. You so, always had this like the legend of Tony Morrison. Oh yeah, so speak, I've and I've talked about this a few times on the podcast. But like speaking of like maybe experiencing things. That's why you're in the literary uh, world. You think maybe? As, well, like, my mom taught English. Um, she taught school for like forty years. So a little yeah. bit, a little calm, a little calm, B, but like speaking of experience i think it's way too young like the moment you can read they're just like here's beloved you're gonna read this it's like maybe <laughs> not like for seven yeah maybe did not for she die and come back holy yeah. shit yeah it's like all right now that <laughs> you finish the that world which is also <laughs> the slave world oh my god is this a metaphor it's a lot it's a little yeah. too much for it's a, a lot to think of, but they did they're yeah. just like oh what, your sixth grade song of solomon let's go 
Um, but have did you always it use starts books? with a suicide? <laughs> I know the opening the, or an attempted suicide, right? Just, the opening yeah. scene that that long, beautiful opening scene about yeah. the lake and the suicide. And you're just like, into, yeah. what the, are we supposed to be like the Velveteen Rabbit or Judy? <laughs> or something? Can I can I get a call of the wild up in this bitch? Yeah, we no 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 James the Giant Peach. Don't worry about that. Let's just get into the full Tony right. Morrison escape. Yeah. Um. So were you? Did you always use books as like an escape? And I, I know there's a lot of scenes in the book about you know, you kind of sitting with buying other people while they were reading, but did you yeah. always tend to use books as, yeah. like, as an escape? Yeah. Books were always, for me as a kid, it was, it actually was Roald Dahl. I, I loved Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. I read every Roald Dahl. Um, and I read uh, nature books, uh, Kelgard and um, Jack London. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, it, it wasn't anything. I never did homework. It never crossed my mind to do homework, um, <laughs> but I had these books and I would read the books. Um, and I got into high school when I went, uh, into the literature in high school that we all had to read and so many people were cheating <laughs> I don't know if that happened in your high school like every kid bit. in the honors track was cheating off each other and I oh, just yeah. didn't cheat I didn't want to cheat I had this like moral very straight edge kind of idea of like personal responsibility and I'm going to make sure that I'm you know I'm not going to be the person who does it and I'm not going to you know rat anyone out but this is the choice that I made it's very straight edge <laughs> and like I decided, and I loved the books. I just loved the books. Um, and then uh, I, I felt like I knew I was going to be a writer someday of some kind. Um, it was always kind of the, somewhere in my mind, it was like, that's what the real people are doing. Like the real geniuses in a society are the writers. That's how mm-hmm. I always felt. Yeah. And when I got to college, I didn't study writing because uh, it felt like cheating, which I know sounds hella pretentious, but it did. It felt like cheating. I was like, I don't want to know how they teach this because I want it to be my play. Yeah. I want it to be my escape. I want it to be my private world. And probably it slowed me down um, because I think had I studied literature or gone to like a writing program or something, um, I might have been able to skip some of the just brute force of reading and writing that, I, that I've done to become the writer I want to be, um, which is like, I mean, I've probably written, published in some form or another over a million words, more than mm-hmm. that, a million and a half words, and that's just editing everyone, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's just repetition and repetition and repetition. And then reading, I kind of came to it later, you know. Um, uh, I started with Vonnegut because uh, I was Generation X white dude. That's the law. <laughs> That's the law. You have to That's do that. You got to start. You know. Um, and you know, I read and uh, I would read every every word Vonnegut ever wrote. I read mm-hmm. every book, every short story. Um, uh, and uh, Player Piano was huge for me. And um, uh, so many of those short stories. I loved a lot of his science fiction short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Um, were great mother night was amazing obviously um but um so and then i moved on to um you know i read every i got into philip roth i read every word that philip roth ever wrote uh which for for better for worse um he's such a lyrical writer though he makes you want to write he's one of those you know one of those writers that he just gives great paragraphs and you're just Mm -hmm. like i just want to write because it's just so lyrical and just yeah so you know um uh, every word Fitzgerald ever wrote, which weren't that many words. Um, yeah. Got into Milan Kundera. Um, read every Nabokov book. A lot of, I think maybe every Nabokov book twice. Everything from like Pale Fire to Laughter in the Dark to, mm-hmm. you know, of course, Lolita and, you know, the bigger books. Um, but, um, and then um, Alice Monroe. So I just kind of had this journey in these. And I, yeah. what I would do is I would read, I would read authors. Not just mm-hmm. I would be like, okay, for the next few months, this is we're just going to read all this. Yeah. Um, and it was, I have no idea how these books are taught in a literature class. I just really like to to read them, and I like them for the reasons I like them. And I don't I don't quite know what you know for each author it's different. 
That's, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of times I took, I took a ton of English and literature courses and it did, like it kind of turned me off to some stuff for a long time. Whereas like, I, I ironically didn't take a lot of American lit classes. It was all like Brit lit, French lit, you know, Russian mm-hmm. lit and all this different stuff. But I didn't read, didn't read a ton of like American literature. And so recently I discovered Wendell Berry who writes very like American pastoral type, mm-hmm. like simple farm life stuff. And exactly what you said, like I spent two months just finding every single word he's ever written. And if it was a professor saying to me, like, you know, what does this farmland represent? I'd be like, I don't know, a guy, yeah, exactly. A guy who's trying to get a fish and there's no fish in the fishing hole. Like that's all I, I was just, they're simple right. stories that I loved. Um, and I mean, listen, there's also something to be said about the way that you did it because people who have taken all those courses, not all of them are written, have written an article in the, you know, in Time Magazine. So, I mean, you got, listen. I think that was an excerpt right. actually uh, that was, that was surprising i didn't i i did not expect that mm-hmm. from this book i wrote this yeah. book i it's so sad and it's so vulgar like yeah. i of all places i got that maybe paris <laughs> review or something i didn't think fucking time magazine yeah mix or something like yeah that. yeah then i would have been would have been thrilled would yeah. have been thrilled i didn't expect to have this this crazy fuck all magazine um want to publish an excerpt from my sad depressing vulgar book yeah well um so what about now like do you read stuff now to kind of escape the people who you know know you on on social media you know you're very aware of everything going on you have incredible commentary on stuff and we'll just leave it at that but like do you read to escape now or do you read to educate yourself on things you're going on read because i love to read you know you you read to like it's all kind of one thing right Mm -hmm. i have to read to write so i part of my writing process is i write for five hours in the morning, read for four hours in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. If I don't read that afternoon, I can't write the next morning. That's yeah. just how it is for me. And I don't know if other writers, what their process is, but for me, I have to read. And it's just like, I'm reminded of the world of ideas. I'm reminded of, I, I can, of what big thoughts are. And I'm reminded of how sentences work. And I'm, it's just kind of like being in it. And it, mm-hmm. a good four hours is what it really takes to sleep yeah. in it. And then in the morning, I'm kind of, I tend to find the muses more, more readily accessible but now yeah i'm reading a lot of science fiction i'm thinking about writing a science fiction book next although Mm. i'm not sure but so i've been reading never let me go i read oryx and crank i got um um what's that book station 11 everyone tells me is is like amazing i haven't read it yet so station 11 is coming up next I don't know how you feel about reading about the pandemic, but the, actually I, I interviewed uh, Emily St. John Mandel for her new book, The Glass Hotel, which oh, is, yeah. it's incredible. But we actually joked, it was before all the pandemic stuff started. And she was like, there's this thing, like before I started recording, she's like, there's this thing going on in China. I mean, it's going to be a big deal here. She's like, so maybe don't tell people to read Station Eleven. And so like, it, it is, it's very <laughs> pandemic-y. So that, okay. you know, just as a heads up. Well, just, perfect. I, I don't mind that at all. You yeah. know, I, it was funny. I was, um, I'm just like, the pandemic um you know we're stressed like everyone but in some ways you know i've been locked in a room for five years (laughs) i haven't gone out much i haven't done shit in five years but sit here anyway and literally in this room this Mm -hmm. i built this room in my basement this is my little home studio office and like yeah i've been sitting here forever and so it's like oh you can't leave all right Oh, that's funny um all right so last question for you what what do you hope readers take away from reading hollywood park oh i don't know um I'm not big on messages. My, my favorite stories are the ones that are answering the question, how was the world for you? Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that people see how the world was for me. Sometimes I feel like there was all these things that happened um, and nobody's, nobody was there to witness them. And I think 
and they were and some of them were wonderful and some of them were very hard in some in some cases we were hurt by people who had power over us in some cases we were just simply ignored um and it's sometimes it feels like writing a book is like all right well now we're gonna let people see this mm -hmm. now we're gonna have a witness and so i think in some ways you know you write a story or a song because there's a party that cries out to be seen um and for me you know um I've gone through most of my adult life and my certainly my artistic life without really bringing any of this stuff up because I, you know, you get sick of feeling like you're living in the shadow of your parents' poor decisions um, and you just want to carve out your own life. Uh, and then at some point you have to reckon with it. Um, and so this is sort of like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's show you, let's show what happened. And so it's like, here's an attempt to have a, have a witness to, to all these important moments um, in my life. So yeah, I don't know if I have a moral or anything, although there's probably a moral on the last page, um, but it's not really meant to be like instructive yeah. or anything. It's more just like, this is what happened and this is my conclusion and this is you know, how it was for me. Well, the book is incredible. This was so much fun. I made it an hour without asking you to play a song. So I'm actually kind of proud of myself. <laughs> um, but Miguel, thank you so much for joining me today. This was fantastic. Adam, thanks for having me. This was fun. I wish all interviews were like this. <laughs> Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.